0: Good evening, everyone. We're ready to start this evening's portion. If you could please turn to page eight, we will begin. Please stand and join singing our entrance song.
1: and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father we thank you once again for this privileged opportunity to gather in your presence. Yes that our hearts might receive and savor the graces we've received this day. Grant us patience where we need it, courage where we lack it, to listen tonight and moving forward. Whatever message it is you wish for us to receive, in tranquility and in peace. And all of this we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's be seated.
2: A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple area for the three o'clock hour of prayer. And a man crippled from birth was carried and placed at the gate of the temple called the beautiful gate every day to beg for alms from the people who entered the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked for alms, but Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, look at us. He paid attention to them, expecting to receive from him, receive something from them. Peter said, I have neither silver nor gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, rise and walk. Then Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles grew strong. He leaped up, stood, and walked around, and went into the temple with him, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the one who used to sit begging at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with amazement and astonishment at what had happened to him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: I always have to laugh every time I see my headshot, (laughs) because, as you know, these things rarely look like you. When you go to certain trade—I don't know what you call—conferences, that sort of thing, where a lot of graduate students show up to present along with keynote speakers, it's not that unusual these days to have headshot booths. You know, where they're thinking, "Oh, you're just starting out in your career. You probably don't have a good headshot, so." Literally, they'll have something set up where you can have the shot done and then I guess Photoshop goes to work or whatever. Uh, Some people don't need that. They're just naturally gorgeous. That's their business. But if you think about a headshot in all seriousness, it's an interesting phenomenon, right? Um, I want to get something that presents me professionally or whatever, I guess if you're a model or something, you're going for a different look. But the very fact that I want to have that one shot that I can use. People will ask for it. Oh, send your headshot. What can we put this in? How hard we work at times to present ourselves because we care about how we are perceived. And I'm not just talking about vanity type things. I mean, at much more serious levels, to think a little bit about how we want to be seen How we'd like to be seen how we're maybe afraid of being seen i promised during the sunday homilies that i would invite us as a community to think about the work of the holy spirit not just in a generic way and i realize not everyone here tonight is from saint joe's but what i'll share you can relate to regardless of what your parish is so those of you who are from saint joe's or even if you're not because i imagine she was very widely known You'll know that in this past year, Pat Smuck passed away, uh, a real pillar of this community. She's one of the first people I met when I came to St. Joe's and she made sure that I felt welcomed, um, as I know she did for so many of you. But at her passing, this place, I'm sure, was filled 10 times more than it is tonight. I wasn't able to be at her funeral, but Apparently, Father Trout used a line in her funeral mass that so impressed a lot of people, and the line was this, respect is the heart of love. Respect is the heart of love. So you have Pat Smuck, a larger-than-life person, who influenced so many people, influenced this parish. When her time to go to the Lord comes, everyone gathers in the funeral mass, And for whatever reason, Father John Trout is inspired by the Spirit, and that line gets woven into, I don't know if it was his homily or whatever, but somehow it was woven into the Mass, and that sticks in the minds and the hearts of many who are present. What happens to that sticking in the mind or heart? Well, and I know some of you know this because you were there, group of Archdiocesan women in Vicariate One, that's our neck of the woods in the Archdiocese of Chicago, they were planning a morning of reflection, and this is often the case, you know, well, what are we going to choose for a theme? You always need themes for these kinds of things, whether your presenter honors the theme or not, Um, and the theme they chose was that line, respect is the heart of love. And that led to all kinds of sharing and reflection amongst a large group of women on this retreat. And they carried that with them, and wherever it's gone, it's gone. Why am I mentioning this? Because that's what it looks like, this idea of the Spirit manifesting, making present, showing us what we need to notice if we're willing to be open to it. Think about it. You have that spirit working in the life of a remarkable woman throughout all those years that she was on this earth. Some part of that, a big part of that in this very parish, touching lives of people who are still here, people who I'm sure have long since moved on to other places. So inspiring, the one who happens to be the pastor at the time of her passing, though she was surely here for other pastors before. But at that moment, at that time, inspiring in him that line, the spirit moving, weaving, blowing through all these lives, inspiring that one thought to be shared and somehow moving, sticking in the hearts of those who are there. We have to share this. We've got to take it broader. Could Pat Smuck in her wildest dreams have imagined what her life would have inspired and where it would lead? I'd like to think that she probably could because she knew what it meant to live the Spirit and to share it. But I'm just trying to say something as ethereal as the Holy Spirit, which sometimes can just be its very deep theology and can be depicted in all different sorts of churchy ways, but it looks like something. And that's just one very concrete example of a woman who lived in this very parish, sat maybe in the very spots you're sitting in, Well, she had her favorite spot, but we all do. But her spirit infusing this place. And now a lot of you who'd never heard of her before, you've heard of her now. And maybe you don't know the woman herself, but maybe you're thinking of someone like that, someone who's touched your life. And you're going to leave here tonight, and who knows where that memory might lead. But that's what it looks like when I say the spirit, if we're open to it helps us notice what we need to notice. That's a warm way, that's a kind way, that's a loving way, that's a way we want to remember. Last night I was scaring you with sinkholes and all of that. I hope some of you got swallowed up. It would warm my heart. That's the other way, sometimes the way that we tend to notice a little bit more graphically, but it's important to remember you can't put this in a bottle. It's as varied and unique as the spirit itself. But the spirit manifests where we are most in need of being met by the love of God. And that's one very powerful example of it. If we can see, because that's what respect is all about, as some of you heard me say on Saturday morning, respect literally means to see again, res bicere, to look back, to look at again. Colloquially, it's come to mean if you respect someone, you treat them kindly, you honor their presence, I get all of that. But what it literally means is to see again, right? And at Pat's funeral, seeing her life again, and somebody hearing that line and being led to look at themselves again. And what do we, how do we look at ourselves as a group again? That's what the Spirit does. I mean, I'm talking about opening up sinkholes and all of that, but what that really means is, can you look and see what maybe you haven't seen before? That's why I was talking about something inside hatching that's always been there, going all the way back to Genesis 1. If only you could see what's there. And when we're willing to see it, when fear doesn't push us away or we're not too busy or we're not jumping on to the next thing that we've constructed, then amazing things often come to the surface. And sometimes what fixes our gaze, what causes us to do that respecting is fear or sadness or grieving or incredible joy, but it's always there. And why a night like tonight matters is that it takes a certain intentionality for those moments when we're not grabbed by the collar. and God said, look here, you know, you don't have any other choice. How do we avail ourselves of that inner beauty even when we're not in a crisis, even when we're not ecstatically joyful? Well, all it takes is reflection. All it takes is a little quiet contemplation. But let's be honest, we live in a society where that is a very precious commodity. But let's also be honest. Sometimes it's such a precious commodity because we don't want to sit and be with it. We'd rather not at times respect ourselves, respect the people with us. That can be a very risky business at times. But if you're able to see again, that's when suddenly you begin to notice what is in there, what's hatching now, what's coming to sight. A reading from yesterday was that extraordinary scene between two prophets, the two greatest prophets before the big ones come along, Isaiah and Jeremiah. So Elijah and Elisha, the bane of every proclaimer, right? How do I make sure they know these are two different people? Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is the star, you know, he's the first one. And the time comes that he has to pass the mantle on. Again, these are real people, so not just to relegate them to Bible land. This is a successful prophet. This is somebody who has garnered a lot of attention, not all of it so positive. But then God makes it very clear to him, thank you for all that you've done, but now it's time for you to choose your successor. Or not to choose him, but to actually let him know whom I've picked. And there's that famous scene, Elijah and Elisha. That was our reading yesterday. And Alicia looks at Elijah. Elijah says, what do you want? Well, if Elijah was absolutely human, there may have been just a little part of him thinking, well, who is this punk, you know? I could still do quite well, thank you very much. I don't need to retire just yet. But Alicia looks at him and says, I want twice of what you have, right? I want two helpings of your spirit. He looked at Elijah, and what was stirred up inside of him was a hunger and a desire. He saw that spirit in Elijah. He saw what it had done, and he wanted that. That's what respecting is meant to stir up, and we shouldn't be afraid of it. If it's envy-driven, if it's all about ego, okay, fine, that's not a good thing. But if the spirit is authentically moving inside of us, it should lead to a hunger. It should lead to a desire. And if you left last night thinking about your own sinkhole, then along with that, I would hope, is also a desire. This is where I want this sinkhole to lead me. If I get caught at the bottom, right, I don't just fall into the bottomless pit, then this is who I want to be caught by, and this is what I want my life to look like when I am caught. I don't want the fear of this sinkhole to paralyze me. If I'm going to go plunging down because I trusted the Spirit, then here's how I hope it looks when I come through. And Elisha looked at Elijah and he saw something that he wanted. When I used to be in the parish and I'd be unleashed on the second graders, getting ready for First Holy Communion or something like that, I would always stir them up by just getting them to say, what do you want? And they'd call out things like ice cream or whatever. But that didn't matter. I wanted them to know that the priest was standing in front of them saying, What do you want? What do you want? You know, eventually I'd steer them into something holier than ice cream. But I wanted them to know that if you talked about religion, it should be about naming what you want. Little kids get that very naturally, right? You don't got to prod them too much to say what they want. And somewhere, as we grow up and mature in the faith, we ask for things. I know that, oh Lord, please let this happen, please let that happen. But oftentimes, it doesn't have that same sort of zeal as when we name the things that we want, or what we want from relationships, or what we want from our marriage, or what we want from our career. And Elisha looked at Elijah and said, I want what you want. Some of you of a certain age will remember the movie When Harry Met Sally. We'll keep this family friendly, so I won't go into great details, but you remember the scene in the diner? (laughs) I want what she's having. (laughs) Why can't we talk about God that? Well, not exactly that way, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Ecstatic, it's originally a spiritual term. But we're shy, and we're, you know, diffident, and gosh, I don't know, I I shouldn't, God, you just give me whatever you think I need. The prophets weren't like that. And if we truly respect another, and if we can see where the Holy Spirit is in them, we should want that as well. Not, as I said, because we're ego-driven and we're just jealous of their qualities. That's not what I'm talking about. But we so desire that animating quality that they have. And I want that. And as we're plunging down into the bottom of our sinkhole, that's what we should be thinking about. The panic is natural. You're going to feel that initially. But if you can stay with it, if you don't just wildly flail, grasping at every straw, and you kind of let yourself fall, because usually what you're falling away from is something that wasn't really helpful in the beginning at all. Remember the wells, the wells that we think we construct? Here's where the water is, I'll dig it, I'll dig it just this deep, I'll dig it just this wide, I'll draw out just this much water, and it's all ultimately a facade. And sooner or later, the sinkhole opens up. So all well and good, if the spirit manifests that, if it makes it real, so what? Then why should we care? Well, here's the second action of the Spirit, transformation. You're going to get three shun words. Last night it was manifestation. Tonight it's transformation. And a lot of times we jump right to the chase, the transforming, right? The Spirit's involved in all the sacraments, bread and wine, get transformed in the body and blood of Christ, transformed at our baptism. But how does that happen? How does that work? You know this. That's where the greatest skeptics of the church today, they struggle, right? The nuns, the N-O-N-E-S. It's not that they don't believe in God, but, you know, the sacrament stuff, what's that all about? Maybe it's just a nice custom. And if all we can do is step in and say, well, wait a minute, the Holy Spirit is there, you know, transubstantiating. You slacker, go back and study your medieval theology. Well, we shouldn't be shocked. I love, I'm a huge fan of St. Thomas, but not everybody is. And if all we can do is say, you know, if you just knew a little more philosophy, this would all make sense, we shouldn't be shocked if there are people who simply get up and go. Because there's something that preceded the medieval philosophy. It's amazing how many people talk about St. Thomas and never read him. It's very clear this was a man of deep prayer. This is a man of a very pastoral nature, and that's what inspired all the brilliant theology. It's not the other way around. So what does this transformation look like? This is always the case, rather than answer my own questions, I'll tell you a story. Working now at the seminary as I do, and I've been there for seven years, um, four years in change as rector, That's a very different kind of position, obviously, than being parish priest. And in that role, I've had to learn what that is. You know, as you go through seminary, you don't think you're preparing to come back. You think you're preparing to leave. And I hope that door swings only one way. Thank you very much. But now that I've been there for a while, one of the most joyful times of the year for me is Ordination Day. When you see those guys, if you've been, you know, and I've been with them now for the four-year cycle, so that's special. And you see them going up, and kind of like Alicia with Elijah, I want that spirit. I want that. And the bishop lays hands, and you know know the work, the journey they've been on, what's been easy for them, what's been hard. The blood, the sweat, the tears, and there they are now. God willing, and they're new priests. Joyful, joyful time for me as the rector. But if one of the most, really the most joyful day in that position for me is ordination day, the saddest day for me is ordination day. And it's a little bit sad because these guys are moving on and I know that if they're not from Chicago, it's not very likely. I'll see most of them again or maybe just once or twice. Kind of like any graduation, college or big school, you get to know these people well and and now they're moving away. And I wish I could say that that's the only reason there's sadness. But if I can be brutally honest, there's another reason why that's also the saddest day. Because I see these guys, these excited, newly minted priests, and they can't wait to leave and go out into their parishes and perform the baptisms and the weddings and the hospital visits and all those small, nondescript ways that they're going to be with their people. And I see them heading out to do that. And I'm not one of them. If I'm gonna be brutally honest, sometimes one of the hardest days for me is ordination day because I know exactly where they're going and I know that I'm not going with them. And I'm not saying that as some sort of pity party because that's the whole point. I could easily step back and say, oh, but wait a minute, John, you've got all these great things and, and you help out at St. Joe's and you do this. See, that's where the unholy spirit wants to creep in. The unholy spirit is a security blanket. You know, oh, yeah, that thing's going on, but, but don't worry about that. Let me cheer you up with this. Or, you know, why are you feeling sorry for yourself? That's the voice that says, oh, that's not a sinkhole. Come on, uh, don't worry about that. Look, we got all these catch wires here. Just grab onto one of these. You've only fallen five feet. We'll pull you back. Or if you were here last night, as I was talking about Jean Vanier, and, and I get it. There's a lot of good with that man, and I, I don't feel like everything that he's done is, is, uh, is shot down, or we're very complicated people. But what I wanted to bring them up last night for was simply to say, my human instinct to try to go in there and, and, and fix things and say, well, you know, it isn't all that bad or, you know, there are good things. Let it be what it is. And there's an important part on ordination day when I see those guys going out. I have to be able to say, and I'm not going with them. It doesn't mean that there aren't wonderful things that I get to do. It doesn't mean that I won't have my time later on down the road, perhaps in some parish. It means I've got to be able to sit there in that moment, in that way, and look in the eye what I'm grieving the loss of. Because if I can't do that, then I'm never really going to be able to look into my own vulnerability. And the word that I want to use to try and wrap all this up in one package is poverty. We have to be able to look at our poverty if we really want to respect in the way that I'm talking about it. And If that word sounds melodramatic to you, fine, plug in any word you want to plug in. And I get it. I'm certainly not making light of the fact that there are a lot of people who are dealing with real material poverty in a way that I certainly am not. And I suspect most of us in this room are not. So I don't use that word lightly. And I use it with deep, deep reverence, knowing that it has many different shades and levels and depths. But my point is simply this. If the Spirit is going to transform, the way He transforms is by allowing us to name our poverty and to sit with it and not run away from it. And this side of paradise, everybody has poverty. Because so often what we do, at least I know what I do, and maybe you do it too, is I ask God to love me in spite of the poverty. Lord, I want you to love me in spite of the fact that this situation happens to exist. That's the diversion, that's the, oh, come on, it's not so bad, or stop feeling sorry for yourself. And yes, sometimes we really are just feeling sorry for ourselves and we need a good slap And God supplies that if we honestly go to him with a pity party and prayer. But I'm talking about the real poverty that's there at times. And when you're falling into your sinkhole, there is going to be poverty. There is something there that's lacking. There's something there that perhaps ought to be there. And for whatever reason, it's not. Maybe that's because of a choice you made. Maybe because that's a choice somebody else made and you've just been the victim of it. Maybe it's simply a result of the family you were born into or the neighborhood you grew up in. We don't have the ability to orchestrate these things, even though we live in a society that often pretends that we do. Be all that you can be. You can make anything of yourself that you want. And when we have to face the reality that that's not accurate, then it's a Holy Spirit moment. And are we willing to allow the Spirit to show us what is really there? And if we are, then what does it look like? So when I say that the Spirit transforms, what I mean is you've got to name in the face of that Spirit where the poverty is. You've got to be willing to say, this is what I don't have right now. This is where I'm struggling. Even before we say, help me, Lord, can you change this? Lord, do something different. So often we jump right to that point. Well, why do we have to name the poverty? God knows everything, doesn't he? Well, we don't pray for God's benefit. We pray for ours. It matters to name where that lack is because that's what opens us up to receive I want you to think about this for a minute. Think about the most intimate relationship you have. Maybe that's with a spouse, maybe that's with a friend or a sibling. Imagine that there's something between the two of you that for whatever reason, you don't mention. You censor yourself. You think it would hurt their feelings or might be embarrassing. You'd feel shame if you brought it up. And something I've learned over time that I wouldn't have known years ago Is that sometimes couples can be together in marriage for decades and there may be something that one holds in their heart that they've never quite brought out to the other but if there's something between two people that for whatever reason is not being mentioned it's always going to be a kind of block in the relationship and it's not just going to be a block because something wasn't shared but if you have something in your heart that you haven't brought out to the other person you've decided you just can't do it or they're not ready to hear it or whatever it might be, you're never going to be as receptive as you might be otherwise. If you don't speak something in your heart that really needs to be known, then I don't care how wonderful a conversation you have and it might be very deep and might be very productive, but you're never really going to receive fully whatever the other person has to share with you. The unspoken significant thing is a block to receiving. And if that's true with other people in your life, it's definitely true with God. The Spirit is always there. He's not hanging out somewhere else saying, well, maybe I'll get to you next Thursday. The Spirit is always there. The only thing we bring to this dynamic is receptivity. The only thing you or I have to offer to our relationship with God is are we receptive to what's being offered? Because one of the first things you learned about God, right? How does God love you? God loves you unconditionally. And if that statement's true, then it never gets any better and it never gets any worse. On the worst day of your life, you were receiving as much that God has to offer you as on the best day of your life. And if you just heard me say that and you said, oh yeah, got that one, then you should be running the seminary, not me. (laughs) Because I struggle with that. I struggle with that. I think of days that I've lost people that I've loved in horrible situations. I think of days where my heart was broken. I think of days that I've committed some of the worst sins I've ever committed. And do I really believe that I was being offered as much from God on that day as on the most joyful days I could ever name for myself, my ordination day, my, you know. But it's not about God showing up and offering us a little more on one day than on another day. It's how can I receive what's being offered. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. The whole spiritual life, the whole point of the spiritual life, And as I look out at the audience, I even see some of my spiritual directees. You're very brave for showing up tonight. Because tomorrow I'm going to tell stories about you. No. But the only thing you do in spiritual direction, the only thing you do when you receive the sacraments, the only thing you do in prayer, all we can do is try to render our hearts a little bit more receptive to what God is offering The goal of the spiritual life is not primarily to be a better person or follow the Ten Commandments more faithfully or go to Mass every day. The only reason we do any of those things is so that our hearts might be just a little bit more receptive to what God has to offer and the means by which God offers them. That's what the Holy Spirit is all about. So think about the sacraments and think about poverty if you like. Think about the Eucharist. You know, think of how grandiloquently we could celebrate a mass. I mean, the transubstantiation itself. Why not bring up the most exotically, exquisitely crafted loaf of bread we could ever come up with? Instead, we've got those little hosts, right? When I see our hosts, I'm often reminded of manna in the desert. Manna, some of you might know, could almost translate it as what is it? kind of a made-up word. They saw this stuff on the ground. They didn't know exactly what it was. For us, manna bread from heaven. I always said the first kid who picked up the first piece of manna and stuck it in his mouth, And can just imagine his Hebrew mother. Don't put that in your mouth. You don't know where that's been. But that's an act of the Holy Spirit, right? There's something there, and I, I wonder what it is. I want it and nobody's going to hold me back. And that's what we do for each other. We inspire each other in that way. Pat Smuck had a certain way of being in the world. And some people, probably a lot of people knew her and said, I want what she's got. Or maybe you took her smile and that just transformed one day of your life. But the Spirit is there, right? Saying, are you willing to wade into these waters but if you're willing to wade into them and you're willing to be led, then you're willing to look inside and see, this is what I don't have, Lord. So in the Eucharist, we bring up this little thing that if you didn't know it was bread, you might need to be convinced that it was. the little wafer, a little bit of wine, and that's what we put up on the altar. And out of the poverty of that gift, right, everything flows But I love the fact that the sacramental nature is such that it still just looks like a little wafer and a little bit of wine. Think of how God could have done it, right? It could have been like the multiplication of the loaves. Every time we celebrate a mass, you know, instead of the St. Joe's sacristans, you guys are amazing, by the way. I've never been in a parish that's so attentive to things like, do we have enough hosts? Do we have enough wine? But you want to give the St. Joe's sacristans a heart attack. You know, say, oh, no, we got it covered. We're fine. And just bring up one little host. You know, imagine it's Easter. And we say, oh, no, we're fine. We got it covered. There's one. Now, think of what God could do. Every time we celebrate the Eucharist, it could be like the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. Wouldn't that be great? You know, we just have a little, a little drop of wine. That's all. And boom, it just goes flooding out. Wouldn't that make it better, right? Wouldn't that make it clearer? Every time I go to Mass, I'd really be getting something, and I'd have no doubt that God is great. And he says, no. In this very moment, you've got to sit with the poverty of this little host and this little bit of wine. Because you have to face the challenge of saying, is there something here more than I can manufacture? You know, if I was in charge of constructing the sacrament of the Eucharist, I probably think of something, what's over the top? What can really convince people that something important is going on here? And that's why I don't orchestrate the sacrament. That's God's MO, that's God's way of being in the world. He's saying, if there's something here that is really powerful, you've got to enter into it through the subtlety of poverty. Think about the baptism of a child, the baptism of a baby, right? It's joyful, it's wonderful, it's a good family gathering, or the Easter vigil with the adults. No doubt about it, it's very festive. But we also know that moment passes, right? Every day is not the Easter vigil. Wouldn't that be interesting? You can come to the three-hour Mass at 8, at 11, or 2. <laughs> and it needs to be that way, because it's not about spectacle. And it's not about flying in all the grandparents from all over the country. It's about saying, do you believe there's something infinitely rich there in the poverty? And can you draw on your baptismal grace? Can you draw on the spirit long after you and everyone else has forgotten the joy of the baptism day? And somehow it's in the poverty if you can stay there. It's not magic, right? and it doesn't always solve the external poverty. If you're praying through the poverty of a struggling illness, if you're praying through the poverty of a struggle in your family, or in your marriage, or at work, or in a memory that's just there and kind of festering in your heart, I wish I could tell you that the Holy Spirit will always swoop in and it'll go away. We know that's not how it works. And so the lie, That the unholy spirit wants to bring in is that yeah this is all just a bunch of stuff this is just a fairy tale that didn't change anything because ultimately what that lie says is the love of god is a consolation prize you really wished that the cancer would go away you prayed it didn't happen but you know god loves you i guess that's okay you wish that horrible situation could just get fixed and healed and mended. It didn't happen. But, you know, God loves you. And all that God has to offer is unconditional love. And the spirit is there saying, I can help you receive it. It really can be transformative, but you've got to be willing to stay here in the midst of it and name what the poverty is. So if you brought your sheet from last night, or Dave Retzik is amazing how he's copied and recopied these, so if there were new sheets, go to the the foldout, or the full sheet. This is one of the greatest prophecies of all from the book of the prophet Isaiah there, Isaiah 11. And this is offered to the people of Israel when they are living in absolute misery, absolute misery wondering god do you care at all are you still there are you doing anything for us and look at how it begins we're not going to read the whole thing it should be very familiar right from advent a shoot shall sprout from the stump of jesse and from his roots a bud shall blossom the spirit of the lord shall rest upon him a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and so on and so forth. The reason I'm sharing this with you is because of how it begins. It's not that, yes, you guys are in dire straits, but you know this conquering hero is going to come through and everything will be right. It doesn't get much more subtle than a shoot shall sprout from a dead stump. One of the most vivid memories I have of my childhood was when my dad sent my brother and myself out to cut down a tree. There's few things little boys love more than cutting down trees, right? And we did it, and it was a live tree. And I still remember to this day, it refused to die. You know, you come back a few weeks later and little stuff is starting to grow up out of the stump. You know, you can say, yeah, what kind of a rock did you grow up under? Everybody knows that. But the first time I saw it, I still remember But this was a dead stump, this remnant of Israel. And that's what the Spirit is working on. A shoot shall sprout from the dead stump. The Spirit will come upon that. And that's how the good news is going to come to this people. Again, don't let this simply be a tale from ancient Israel, a Bible story. Think of what that looks like for us. If you're going down your sinkhole, is there just a little shoot that's there on what you thought was a dead stump? That's where the spirit wants to enter because it's entering through poverty. If all you have is your dead stump, right? And you're saying, this isn't about me. There's nothing more I have left to grasp at. Sometimes it's precisely then When we can name that emptiness that our hearts become open to receiving because before we get to that point we're naming every other thing we can possibly name I shouldn't have to deal with this it shouldn't have to be this way can't there be some other way surely there must be another way if I just tried a little bit harder and please don't hear what I'm not saying I'm not saying that God just wants us to be beaten down and it's one miserable situation after another But there's a reason why he's called our Savior, because there's something in our lives that needs to be saved. If there's nowhere in your life where you need to be saved, you know, if we do a structural analysis and there's no sinkhole at all, if every root leads to a flowering, thriving bush, God love you. Actually, you love me because you must be God. I can't think of any non-God about whom that would apply. But we don't like to talk that way. The true story, I literally remember coming out of one Good Friday service and a woman just telling me how much she hated to go because it was such a downer. You know, I don't come to church to be depressed. And the Spirit is saying, well, you should. At least once. Because you don't stay there. That's the whole point. It's not about just being depressed so you lay in the dirt. It's about letting go of what needs to be let go of. And this side of paradise, every one of us has something that needs to be let go of. Did I get to the point overnight of being able to say Ordination Day is one of my saddest days because I'm not going to do what they get to do? No. And for a while, I pretended that I was stumped by that one. And I remember sitting with my spiritual director. And I said, you know, it's just a sad day. And, you know, he kind of said, well, yeah, you've been with these guys, and now they're moving on, and you're probably going to miss them. And he kind of gave me that little line, and I took it. Yeah, that's right, you know. And and then we kind of veer off and talk about Joe or whoever that was really going to miss because he was such a good guy. But after two or three years, he finally caught on to me. He said, John, there's a sadness here that isn't just about, you know, Joe the seminarian now going off his own way. There's a deeper sadness there. And we're not, we're not ending this until, until we kind of dig a little bit deeper. This is where I tried every trick in my book to get out of it, believe me. Hey, I'm the rector of the seminary, Father. I, I think I know what I'm talking about here. And he said, yeah, and I've been your spiritual director for 10 years, and I know what you're talking about a lot better than you do. And I can't say that just because I have that insight, it means I don't feel that sadness still. You know, it's almost March. Ordination's going to be here in a couple months. And I know that sadness is going to be there again. But being able to name it has been so transformative. Being able to name it has really allowed me to be with and in the joy of these guys in a way that I hadn't been able before. Because in being able to name it, I begin to realize, hey, this Holy Spirit is about a lot more than this guy getting ordained and going to that parish or me eventually going to some other assignment or this or that in the church. This Holy Spirit is way bigger than all of that. We, in our own privileged way, participate in it in some small wonderful way. But there's something much bigger here. But I had to get to the point where I could say it without shame because it was shame that made me not want to say it. I don't want to. What a horrible thing to say that I feel a little resentment that you're going off to do what I don't get to do. That's awful. How could I possibly feel that way? They'll kick me out of the rector's club. And I've often thought as I've talked with other rectors in you know, ordination day, oh yeah, wasn't that great? And I'll be honest, you sometimes compare numbers even. Oh yeah, how many did you ordain? You know, so all this pettiness, all this pettiness that creeps in. And yet when I've had some honest conversations with some of them, they've more or less admitted a similar thing. There's a good model for this. I mean, I'm not just winging it when I say this is how the spirit transforms and the model I want to use is the model of our Lord himself okay think of how his public ministry kicks off you know he's so let's leave the shepherds and angels and all that so he's grown up now and he gets baptized right and famously he's coming out of the water the father appears and what does the father say to him you are my beloved son Okay. Even in that, there's a little hint of poverty. It's a good poverty, right? A son, if he enjoys being a son, a daughter, if she enjoys being a daughter and hearing how much she is beloved by her parents, how much she is beloved by his parents, there's a smallness there that we enjoy. I like to know, if indeed I'm receiving it well, that I'm your beloved son or daughter. There's a beautiful little poverty even in that relationship. But immediately following that beautiful word of affirmation, then who steps into play? That was the father. Then the father goes off. He sits in his recliner. Who steps in next, right after the baptism? I heard the devil. Who comes in before the devil? Who's the star of our our mission? Holy Holy Spirit. See, I can't resist turning into the belligerent teacher, Um, the Spirit, right after he hears, you are my beloved son, the Spirit drives him out into the desert, drives him into the very heart of poverty, if you think about it. And he's out there and he fasts for 40 days, right? We're on the verge of Lent. So, on the one hand, it's okay, Jesus goes out there, he fasts, but think about it for a minute. The Spirit, our hero, forces him right into the face of poverty and when the devil comes along what does the devil do he basically tries to get jesus admit that he doesn't have to be poor if you really are the son of god you don't have to be hungry turn these stones into bread what's he saying if you really are the son of god if you really are the beloved one if you really are the one who's receiving unconditional love You shouldn't have to be poor. It's about way more than just bread. You shouldn't have to need anything. If you are the son of God, throw yourself off the cliff and the angels will catch you. Um, What's he saying? If you really are the receptor of unconditional love, you should never have any pain or hurt. You should never have to know sadness. You shouldn't have to be poor if you are loved by God. If that's the devil pulling his A-game out to try and tempt Jesus himself, we ought to realize that we're going to go through the same thing and we're not going to have the resisting powers of Jesus. So we should cut ourselves some slack. And when I say, don't be afraid to look at your poverty, there's a reason why I'm saying it. It's not because I'm Debbie Downer, what the devil wants you to believe is the myth which says, no, there's no sinkhole. It's a nice well. It's a nice fountain, you know. Don't don't go listen to this guy. You don't have to deal with that. That's the absence of God. That's the definition of the absence of God, is your poverty, the thing that you lack. And notice Jesus very beautifully doesn't say, you know, devil, I don't need you. And once the devil leaves, okay, now now I'll turn these stones into bread. Now I'll use that power. He lets himself stay in the poverty itself. Let's fast forward, oh, about three years. Now he's in the garden, right? The garden of Gethsemane. Is there poverty there? You better believe it. Everything he's been working to try and bring to fruition seemingly has fallen apart. His followers have left, he's been betrayed. He has a, he's not stupid, he knows what's coming. And there he is in the garden, eyeball to eyeball with the father, the very same father who said, you are my beloved son, and the spirit is there as well. And I've got to believe at that moment, he remembered what this spirit has done in his life, that it was the spirit who caused him to face his poverty at the very beginning of this public ministry. And this I do want to read verbatim. I'll read you Matthew's version. Jesus came with them, Peter and John, to a place called Gethsemane. He says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He takes along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to feel sorrow and distress. Don't tell me that's not poverty. I feel sorrow. I feel distress. I feel the way that a full human being ought not to feel. Something here is not right. Then he said, my soul is sorrowful even to death. My soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and keep watch with me. He advances a little farther and he falls prostrate on the ground. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will but as you will. What does he do? He names his poverty. He names his poverty. Father, let me tell you what my desire is, and I can see that it's not your desire, but it matters that he says it. It matters that he can name his own sinkhole. It matters that he can name his own lack in this moment and he's not making it up. He feels distressed, he feels sorrowful, even to the point of death. And this is about a lot more than just the physical pain. Right? So often we just limit it to that. Oh, he's so afraid of what he's gonna suffer the next day, and I'm not making light of that. But let's be honest, there are plenty of people who have suffered physical pain that probably if you gave them the option of three hours on a cross versus what they've had to endure over their lives would take the swap. This is about a lot more than physical pain but he names the poverty and he says it to the one whom he's grown to trust this isn't the father that just came in out of left field but he names the poverty and all I can do is offer that to you right I can't do it for you this isn't a one-and-done overnight miraculous cure and Jesus didn't name his poverty and then not have to go on the cross The physical situation was not changed, but his heart became all the more receptive because he could name that unspoken thing that was there until he brought it out and spoke it. And now he could receive, and now he could hear. Last thing I'll just say, is in the reading we had for tonight, what you have is Peter. And as some of you were with me on Saturday morning, I told you that's one of my favorite readings. Because there's Peter after the resurrection, after the ascension. Pentecost has happened. Now he has received the Holy Spirit. And there he is at the temple. And the beggar is there. And he's saying, hey, Peter, John, you know why I'm here. You know what I want from you. And Peter knows what he doesn't have. And he names it. This scene is about a lot more than just, I don't have any money, but let me say a prayer with you. He says to the man, I don't have silver and I don't have gold. He's naming his own poverty. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. Well, what does he have? What he has is exactly what you and I have by virtue of our baptism. But he's gone through a very long process of having to face his poverty. Think of the foot washing scene. Think of his betrayal in the garden. Think of get behind me, Satan. He's had this whole schooling process of having to admit where he lacks and Jesus has been with him. That's what we do for one another. If the transformation comes by being able to look at where the lack, the vulnerability, the poverty is and stay and receive around that, we don't do it alone. And that's what tomorrow night is all about if the Spirit manifests and makes real to us where those sinkholes are, and if we stay there and we name them and we look into them and we don't run away, but we open ourselves up, that's where the Spirit really can rush in. I stand as a living witness to you. You don't have to be just held in the grip of an unnameable sadness. There really can be transformation. But the external still happens. The guys are still going to be ordained and move on to their things. And I'm still going to go back to the seminary. And the illness may still be there and the marriage may still be struggling and the job career may be stalled. But there is a difference and there is a change. But we don't do that alone. And so tomorrow our word will be communication. Not in the sense of speaking a message, but in making community. And I know tomorrow might be a rather ugly day. We'll just see. We'll get through it together. And my invitation to you for prayer tonight is, what poverty would you name for yourself? Or as I said on Sunday at the masses, where might you name where you're being trapped? But don't just name the trap. Name that desire or the lack that's there as well. So we'll just have a few minutes of reflective music and then we'll be on our way. Please rise. So again we'll gather tomorrow at seven o'clock here. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go and denounce the gospel of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God.